0: Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. And the idea there is sin was not accounted for when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. It might be read or understood this way as a result of one offense, followed judgment and condemnation, but the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. Again, here what we might read is, as a result of many offenses, or in response to many offenses, followed the free gift of, in this case, the word here for justification is a justifying act. A justifying act. And we'll read about that justifying act again in verse 18. For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. Now that's the exact same word that is translated as justification at the end of verse 16. That's why we would translate this as a justifying act. Through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of a life so let's start here this is paul's argument and it doesn't take much to prove this the sin of one man adam released a flood of sin and misery that has touched everyone ever after it's come upon us all verse 12 says because of adam's sin sin entered the world and death through sin, because all have sinned. And then in verse 14, Paul gives a historical review of this world age under this impact, this invading impact of sin that entered in through the fissure of Adam's sin. This one sin, this one sin where God simply said, Adam, you just can't eat that fruit, and he ate that fruit. And that one simple, seemingly minor sin. Your parents have said things to you like that. Don't get into the cookie jar. And you did. And guess that one sin? A fissure took place in which sin entered into the world. And in verse 14, it says that death reigned throughout the world like a malevolent king from Adam to Moses. And as we mentioned before, it's still reigning today. You can go and mark all the great men of history. And if you want to find out where they're pronounced before us and where they're prominent before us, they're pronounced at memorials above their graves. And there we look and give some testament to their life, but even the testament to their life is found in graveyards. Because death is reigning over all the world because of sin, and life is full of misery, life is full of disintegration because of sin, and life is full of death and ruin and disappointment. I just spent three weeks in one of the most beautiful places in all the world. One of the nice things about being in this place is that People unplug from all their technology. You know, in my neighborhood, if you see your neighbor walking by and you want to talk to them, you can call out their name and they don't hear you. They'll just keep walking because their head is on their phone and they've got plugs in their ears. They can't even hear you as they're walking on by. They're just moving through the community. But when you get out on the Oregon coast where we were at, you take those things out. You want to hear the sound of the ocean waves pounding away. And you're not looking at your phone. You're looking up at all the majestic beauty around you. And as a result of that, you actually notice the other people that are around you, too, that are enjoying the same thing. And for a moment now, you're not locked into your own little world where you're looking at this device in your hand and you're listening to whatever you're hearing from it in your ear, in your own little world, but it cocooned away from everyone else. But in that place, you're all experiencing the same thing, and it's wonderful. In fact, one of the nice things about being the coast is you very rarely see a person who is sad to be there. Everybody seems to be smiling and kind of happy. And then as a result of it, oddly enough, you engage one another. It's kind of a thing that we used to do quite often that doesn't happen now. But you actually begin talking to one another. And you say things like, this is how it usually begins. Isn't that beautiful? What a lovely day. And there's always some comment of what they've seen and what they've experienced and the wonder of the place and the beauty. And this was happening every single day. I actually find it hard to make the, the three or four block trek back to where we're staying without being stopped for a half hour to 45 minutes because of people that you begin engaging talking. And not only that, once that opened up, they wanted to talk about other things. And all you had to do was ask them a few questions. Where are you from? How long have you been here? How often have you come here? And on, and now they begin to open up their life before you. In this beautiful place. But here's the interesting thing. Even in this beautiful place, if you just listen to them and let them talk for over five minutes, it would always pivot to some point of disappointment or misery or defeat or discouragement or it would be juxtaposed against what's going on in their world and their life. And this happened every single time. It was surprising that even in the most beautiful place, I think, one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth, you ultimately, even in recognizing it, you can't forget the gnawing truth and reality that there is misery and there's destruction and disappointment in your life. And it would come through... There would be a breath of kind of like winsomeness in the people. Oh, if only life and if only the beauties we're seeing in this place could somehow just radiate themselves constantly upon our life. But we know we've got to go back to reality at some point. That's what you kind of would meet when you met individuals and talked to them. This haunting behind even the beauty that they were experiencing of their miseries. So it is. This is what Adam brought to all of us. Adam's one act of disobedience has thrust us into a condition and conditions of sin and death and the consequences of sin and death that we are born into and conditions and consequences that then begin to produce sin and death in our own lives. Everything evil in this world, everything broken in this world, broke in upon us at the moment when Adam sinned. As I mentioned in my last message, it... It might be helpful, and I found this helpful in talking to individuals because I was able to share the gospel a few times. To point out to them that that misery and that disappointment that they're weighing and measuring and seeing and proliferating in the areas where they live and in their lives, those negative things that are compounding their life all began from one decisive act, and it proliferated from that point. It it began at the point where, the Bible teaches us, where one man sinned, Adam. And, and, And this, by the way, you can prove to them is true in their own lives. They can look back in their own lives and see how one bad decision, one indiscretion, one thing has opened up a whole fount of pouring in of difficulties and trials and hardships. And it's not hard to prove them that a bad action, a bad decision, a moment of indiscretion can produce ramifications and consequences that go on and on beyond themselves. And they're experiencing themselves as well. And that's what happened when Adam sinned. Now listen, the reason you don't share that with them is in order to just pick the scab of their miseries and their sufferings. It's actually a hopeful thing. It's to say, now listen, if it's possible that all this is begun by this one person's indiscretion and it's cast itself over the world, what the Bible offers is the hope that by one man, one supernatural man's perfect righteousness and provision, that he can reverse all that and begin to pour into us life and grace. And that's the gospel message. It was good to be able to share that with individuals. This is what Paul is talking about. Adam is a type of the one who is to come. This is hopeful. He says the one who is to come. It's a very dramatic statement. The one who is to come. That means this. He has come. It's a hint. The one who was to come has come. And he has provided an answer. And he's provided a solution to this cascade And this ongoing tidal wave and tsunami of sin that swept over the world and over your life. And he has a current, a back current that he's bringing to reverse it all. Because Adam was just a type of the anti-type. In this case, the word anti-type means one who perfectly fulfills. One who perfectly fulfills all the positive hopes against all the negative things that Adam represents. So that's what he's talking about. If one person could bring all this mystery to us as a type a negative type, then one supreme divine man can bring to us. What could he bring to us as the positive fulfillment of all these things? This is the major point we've made in the past, and I just want you to lock into it again, and we're going to just talk about this, but that remember that Adam is a negative type of the positive anti-type of Jesus Christ. Adam's sin has brought all this growing account of sin and death and misery so that from one man's disobedience There has proliferated with it all this death that is ruling over our age like a king. But there is one who has come, who has, just as Adam has brought this multiplication of sin, there is one who comes now, and as we believe and trust in him, brings with him a multiplication and an ongoing expanse of righteousness that shall last throughout all eternity. That's the truth. That's what's being revealed to us. That's the hope that is being left before us. Paul is going to talk about the free gift that this antitype Christ will bring. And he's going to talk about the abundance of life that he brings that will exceed the compiling of the record of sin and death in our life and the record of sin and death in the world. But to appreciate the free gift, Paul is going to juxtapose him against and he's going to continue to press home the misery that Adam has brought to all of us. And so again... Let's look at this for a moment. Let's consider it. So here's our first point that we're going to give to you this morning, and it's this. In Adam's one sin, there is this growing math of sin. There is this growing account of sin that builds off of Adam's one act of disobedience that is being pressed home to us. Look at verses 13 and 14. We spoke about this a month ago. Look at verses 13 and 14. There we read this. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now, we mentioned this before, that the the Jews had an idea that sin was only actually, in a sense, actualized when a law had been given. They actually believed that the pronouncing of the law on Mount Sinai... And hearing the pronouncing of the law, God made known their sins, but it was in that place that God led them to a place of sacrifice where their sins were forgiven. So the law was necessary in order to be, know their sins and be cleansed of their sins. And the Gentiles were just in a condemned state, but they had no knowledge of their sins, so they had no way or no access to get forgiveness through a sacrifice for their sins. And that is basically the idea that they believe. And Adam, Paul is to some extent promoting that idea. But for the the Jew, their idea was that there was no sin, ultimately, until the law was pronounced. Paul is not agreeing with that idea. He's saying, no, it's just that the sin wasn't accounted for. It wasn't understood. It wasn't appreciated. But sin was still in the world, and it was still ruling, and death was still ruling up to that point in time. And we know it's true that Cain murdered his brother before the law was given. Before thou shalt not murder was given and pronounced on Mount Sinai, Cain murdered his brother and God judged Cain. And after that Lamech came and boasted to his two wives that he had slain men and that he was going to suffer like his great grandfather was Cain had suffered and on and on went murder. And then not only that, we read in Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 and 6 that the Lord saw that wickedness was great upon the earth to such an extent that it grieved his heart, that the heart, the intent of men was evil always. So God judged the world with a flood and then after that came Sodom and Gomorrah and God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, and we might read on and see over and over again these judgments of God coming upon the sinful acts of men. And if you go back to Romans chapter 2, you'll remember that Paul tells us that even without the giving of the law recorded in the Ten Commandments, that individuals who don't have that law are a law unto themselves. They have a conscience that tells them right and wrong. That conscience is imperfect. Sometimes they're convicted about things that are really not sin. Other times they're not as convicted as they should be, to the extent they should be, of things that are sin. But as a general rule, there's a conviction that's going on a conscience. That conscience can become seared and it can become hardened, but it's there. What did the law do? What the law did was it helped to specify the sins that people were committing and clarify it so it sharpened their conviction and helped them understand the depth of their sinfulness and it It made them more accountable. They were able to take full account of the sin that was accumulating in their lives. It wasn't that they weren't sinning, but now it was accumulating and building up and they were taking account of those things as they studied these things and saw these things. I think the illustration I gave you was the illustration of an individual who is suffering with some kind of sickness. He's not been feeling well for some time and he he knows he ought to go see the doctor, but he doesn't want to go see the doctor because he doesn't really want the diagnosis. He's afraid of the diagnosis. He's afraid it might be something serious. He doesn't want to find out about it. So he just delays and delays and delays at the same time. Things are not quite right in his body. And finally, eventually he goes to the doctor and the doctor runs a series of tests and discovers that he has a serious sickness, a serious disease. And now the doctor sits down and explains to him and connects the symptoms he's experiencing with the progress of that disease and tells him what that disease will continue to do in his body. And he tells him what it is he needs to do in order to address that disease. Here's what's happening. Now the man is taking an account of his sickness. Now he understands it better than he's understood it before. Now he understands why it was happening and what was causing it and what was going wrong and what was not right in his body. And he's taking account of his sickness. And hopefully as a result, he can begin to avail himself Of the provision, the medical provisions that might be available to him in order to address it and treat it. But what we can say is this: the doctor and his diagnosis did not cause the disease. The doctor and his diagnosis didn't that moment make disease suddenly appear. It was always going on, it was always there, but now it's being taken into account. And in the same way, the law is simply enabling individuals to take into account the depth of their sinfulness and their condition, and that's why it was given. So here's an application for you. We have to be ready to bring people before God's law. But like a good doctor, we have to have a good bedside manner. We have to be gentle and kind and gracious as we're breaking in the news to them, but we have to help them understand. We don't serve a person by ignoring or generalizing their sins. At some point in time, we have to turn even the attention to not only how sin entered through Adam and through one person all this misery can come in the world, but then we have to redirect the misery to their own actions and their own sins and their own need for that to be addressed specifically, taken care of. We have to bring them into that account. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about that. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. And whether Paul's talking about his conversion experience or whether Paul's talking about something that God was doing in order to bring him deeper and deeper into the power of the salvation, and sanctifying work is something we'll address later. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the fact that he had considered himself, in a sense, beyond sin or without sin until he came to the law and he understood the commandment that thou shalt not covet. Actually, what Paul says is he says, I would not have known sin if it had not been by the law when he read that one law. Now, what Paul is saying is not, I thought I was perfect and without sin that there was no... His conscience was still working like any other man's conscience. But it's saying, in a sense, the reality of the depth, the pervasiveness, the fullness, it bringing it into a crisp view so I can see all of its lines in 2020 vision, and I can see the accounting of it all. I didn't know it until I read this commandment that said, Thou shalt not covet. At that moment, he said, My life was filled with all manner of coveting. He says, The law slew me, it basically put me to death. I realized... How sinful I was. When we train people in our ministry uh, overseas, we do training here as well. We have different lessons that we give them. At the end of each lesson, we have an application for them that they're to go home and do and then come back the next week and share how they applied it. At the end of one of the lessons, one of the applications is they're to memorize the Ten Commandments that state in Exodus chapter 20, but that you'll have no other God before me and that you'll make no other graven images or bow down to it and that you won't take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. That is that you won't cloak yourself in God's name and then carry on a malicious, sinful life and that you'll keep the Sabbath rest that God has provided for you and you'll honor your parents and you'll not murder and you'll not commit adultery and you'll not steal and you'll not lie and you'll not covet. They're to memorize those things. And then they're to identify which one of those Ten Commandments the Spirit of God uniquely used and pressed home to them to convict them that they were sinners in need of God's salvation. And they're to come back and share that story. And then I said, I'll share my story when we get back. But here's a hint when we get back together. Mine is thou shalt not murder. Mine is thou shalt not murder. So that, that piques their interest. And so I'll, I think I've shared this story with you maybe before, but I'll share it with you now. I was about 16 years old. My father had bought me a really nice corduroy uh, suit with the vest and everything, kind of a rust colored one. I was pretty proud of it. I had grown to such a stature that it was the same size as my older brother. On one Sunday, he asked to wear my suit, persuaded me, that, and I let him wear the suit. So we would, he would wear my suit to church. We went to the church where the church was located. We went way early. Our father had sent us there to open it up and do some setup in the church to prepare for the service that morning. We found out we didn't have the keys to the church. And we were on the other side of town in this neighborhood. I said, well, we'll have to go back. We'll just have to wait till dad comes and we can get in. And my brother said, no, we can climb through that window there. I can get up and climb through that window. And I said, no, I don't want you climbing through the window because you'll get my suit dirty. I could see the window was lined with dirt and scum and film. And no, no, we'll do it. I said, no, you can't. Well, it's got to crack open. I can climb through it. No, you're not going to. And then a disagreement began to develop. And a wrestling match took place on the front lawn of the church. Eventually, he overpowered me and then jumped up and climbed through the window. And as he's climbing through the window, I'm sure this really impressed all the neighbors around, right? I started shouting, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I think that was it. I was so mad and angry at him that I I couldn't even go into church after that. I just wandered around the park that was by that church, just boiling and seething. I was so mad at him that he had soiled my new corduroy suit. And I began to tabulate my mind the, the table of offenses that he had committed to me. And then I began to attach those offenses to character flaws, to the heart of evil in himself. And then I began to plot out what I could do to pay him back for those things. And this was just going on. And I was walking. The park is seeding over these things. And I didn't go into the church service. The church service was going on. I didn't go into the church service. And then I sat down finally... I threw the Bible that I had down on the table in front of me, a picnic table, sat down and thought, I'll read the Bible. And the Bible flopped open, flopped open to 1 John chapter 3. And my eyes went directly to verses 14 and 15. And these are the only verses I read. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And an accounting took place in that hour. An accounting of the law of God. A deep conviction. I forgot the offense of my brother. My offense far, far outweighed his indiscretion and his carelessness. God was dealing with me and showing me my sin and my self-righteousness. God was bringing me under, you might say, the light and the scope of the law of God so that sin might proliferate in me. That's what Paul is saying here. Sin was still active in the world, he says, even though it was not reckoned or accounted for fully without the statement of the law. But sin was still reigning. and It was still producing its effect. So you see in verses 13 and 14, Paul is teaching that without the law, sin is still happening and death is still reigning. And with the law, it only increases our awareness of its exceeding sinfulness. Actually, verse 20 will tell us that if you go on to say that. The law is given in order to increase our sense of sinfulness. He's saying that the law makes sin all the clearer. But even without the law, we sin. And sin reigns. And sin is active. And all its influences are being expressed, even death, so that sin is universal and death is universal. And this account of sin is just piling up on the world, but... Remember, it also piles up on your life. It's piling up on our life. The man who knows not Christ, the person who has not come to his salvation, it's just accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And at some point in time, he has to recognize the profound spiritual bankruptcy of his own sin that's weighing up in his soul. The Adam's sin is now proliferating in his own life and he is, in a sense, proliferating his own actions and sending it out and paying it forward in a greater multiplying depth around the world. There is of an accounting of the lines and upon lines upon lines of offenses that are adding up that he'll never be able to pay. And the disease of his sin is progressing to such an extent that he'll never be able to overcome it. There's no good eating habits he'll be able to provide or jogging he can do to ward off or drive back the disease that now is infecting and weighing in upon every cell of his being. Adam's sin. It's crashing into your personal account, and you now face an unpayable debt. This is the type that Adam is in the negative, and it's against this. Paul now introduces us the positive type of Jesus Christ. So verses fifteen through seventeen again, just the negative here. Adam's one sin in verse fifteen brings by one man's offense many dies. It says, verse sixteen, because of Adam's sin, what follows is judgment and condemnation that comes upon Adam, but it comes upon all. Verse seventeen. Because of Adam's sin, death is now ruling over us. By one man's offense, it says, Death reigns. Death is ruling. That's the math of Adam's sin proliferating. That's the math of your sin that proliferates out from your life. But now there's a new math that Paul is introducing. It's the math of grace that comes to us who believe in Jesus Christ, the antitype. So go back to verse 15 here. And here we see, in the place of dying, many dying, He says, this new math is much more the grace of God and the gift of grace by one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. That is in the place of all this death and this misery. There is now a movement and a current of all of the benefits, all the rolling anthem benefits of blessing and grace and life that comes poured on upon those who believe in Jesus Christ that is rolling in to such an extent that one day it, it just sweeps away the tide of death. And even though you might be recording now Signs of the progress that you're getting older and older and coming closer and closer to the end of your life. If you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're coming closer and closer to an explosion of life and glory and benefit and blessing that is unimaginable. That is getting ready to pour in upon you. But even now, I hope you're tasting it because Paul says that we stand and we exalt in the access we have into the full graces of our salvation. This against the math of Adam's proliferation of sin comes a new math of all this grace pouring against us. And then verse 16, it says this, by Adam's one sin came or followed condemnation. But at the same time, he says to us, basically now, in response to that, now where there are many people sinning and there are many sinners and it's universal across the world, God comes and he reverses the math because against all these many people who are sinning, God brings one free gift This is what follows all the many sins. This doesn't even, this isn't good math. This is God's math. This is the math of grace. God brings one free gift, and that free gift is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ laid down in the place of our sins. You remember when Jesus Christ went to the cross at the last meal, one of the last things he said before they went out to the garden was, that the Father may be glorified as the Father gives me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let's go from here. Those were his last words. As he's making, I am going to complete the life of obedience that I've come to live. And the final act, the full complete act of my obedience is I'm going out to die for you. And to suffer for the multitude of your sins. Adam's one sin led to a proliferation of sin to many And then God comes and sees the many sin and what should follow is more and more judgment. And instead, God tabulates it all and says, no, what this calls for is one complete, perfect, righteous act of sacrifice for those sins, for you. That's what's promised here. And then verse 17, where death has reigned like a malevolent king, ruling over us. Now we're told in verse 17 this, for by one man's offense, death reigned through one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Against all the ruling of death that we see around us, this passage says not only has Christ come to complete this one righteous act to make me right with God and the basis of my justification, but through that act now, I reign. I reign with Christ. I rule with him. The Bible says one day we're going to judge the earth. It says of believers, one day we're going to judge angels. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Even now we're being promised that we reign and we rule in this life. This real life filled with decay, our poise and our attitude in the midst of it, is we reign through Jesus Christ. My wife and I decided as we were going out and looking at all the beauty up and down the Oregon coast, which is overwhelming, that we were just surveying our inheritance The meek shall inherit the earth. This is what God is preparing for us and those who love Him. We're going to reign and rule with Him. But oh, that changes the way I should encounter life. I should encounter life and the challenges and the difficulties and the contradiction. As a prince of God, as a princess, as one who's going to rule as a king with our God Jesus Christ and reign with Him upon the earth. I'm not going to believe Satan's lies I'm not going to believe his enticements. He tried to entice the Lord Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness to bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Let the Lord Jesus no. one day out of his obedience to the father, he would be established and this would all be given to him to reign upon. And I'm going to be a co-heir with him. And so Satan comes and says, just give your life for this thing and that thing. And just devote yourself to that pleasure. And if you'll just bow down to me and this thing, I'll give you that pleasure and I'll give you this. And we answer, don't tempt the Lord your God. He has promised that I'll reign with Him and I'll inherit all good, great, and glorious things, perfect, purified for my enjoyment. I'm going to live like a king. I'm going to live like one who's going to inherit all things through Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. The impetus today is, And what we've been talking about is all these things that have been brought to you. There's more to be said about this. I want to talk about it next week. And so we'll maybe take these last remaining thoughts to introduce what we want to talk about last week. But this this has to be personalized. That's what faith does. It believes God for that great thing. And that great thing for my life, that promise, I rest in it, I secure myself in it, keeps me going. It overcomes the difficulties and challenges. It gives me a message to give to the world and a message that overcomes the false messaging that this world gives to me. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you. Jesus, you've said that we would not eat of this this table with us again until we... You ate it again with us in the kingdom, and that kingdom is coming, and it's arriving, and it's on its way, but even now, we've been left to partake of this meal to remind ourselves that even now, that kingdom is advancing. There are provisions for us even here. There is a taste, a foretaste of heaven today, of heaven below. There's a promise in all the things that we experience in our life. An earnest, you might say, in this appetizer of the fullness of blessing that will one day so much more break out upon us that it will overwhelm, overwhelm in its testimony the misery that is breaking out and has broke out for millennia upon this earth. How we praise you and thank you for that. We thank you for the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that is ours through Jesus Christ. Help us to live as victors. Help us to claim it and live in it, to believe it, to take hold of it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.